Okay. So you want you want to give that a shot? Okay. Um, all right. Here we go. Hello. Hello, and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Before we get started, just a quick minute on the mission of The Word is Out, Alan. Kip, it's good to hear from you again. The Word is Out is very active now in uh, several countries of the world. We are establishing a center for biblical understanding in the nation of Zambia. We have an instructor there who is working diligently in training pastors and church leaders uh, in the ways of inductive Bible study uh, to enrich their ministry, to equip the church um, as it faces all the obstacles that that we face today. Mm. Lael Zulu is the instructor. He is a native of Zambia, and we are currently in the process of looking for property to actually build our center. Mm. So that's kind of exciting. Property doesn't last very long in Zambia before it's purchased, so we're having to move kind of quickly when property becomes available. So that's something that um, that our listeners might be interested in, in learning. We have been renting a place in a, in a local uh, church in uh, Lusaka, but want a place for our very own, and this would be an opportunity to do that. So exciting things going on with the Word of Zeit. Mm. And this one champion, uh, Lyle, he has the potential to reach, um, of course, many, many more multi- and multiply that out. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think currently he's been offering some courses on inductive Bible study. Um, he's had uh, more than 30 students at uh, uh, going through his classes, uh, but the opportunities are great. The, the, the need is immense. Uh, most pastors in Zambia and other parts of Africa have no theological training whatsoever. So it provides an opportunity for uh, for them to come to grips with God's Word, to understand it better, and therefore to proclaim it more effectively. And just for clarity's sake, those he teaches are actually going out and teaching others. Oh yeah, they're all they're, they're all of them are pastors, right. church leaders. Great. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, it's exciting. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, well, now we continue our journey through the Pentateuch. On our last podcast, we enjoyed a book near and dear to your heart, Exodus. And now we move on to Leviticus. I, I have to be honest; I don't find the book of Leviticus the most engaging book in the Bible. Why? <laughs> why would I want to study it? Well, most people don't actually, but it plays an important role in the development of uh, religious practice in the Old Testament and indeed in religion in general. But essentially, it is a handbook for priests. Uh, it bridges the gap between the Exodus from Egypt, uh, you know, which we read about in the book of Exodus, uh, to Israel being posed to enter the Promised Land at the end of the Pentateuch, into the books of Joshua and, and Judges. Um, someone has said, and I think it's really incredibly wise, that it took God one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. <laughs> I think that's funny, but it's very, very true. Uh, Exodus tells us the story of salvation. Leviticus teaches us how to be holy. It's kind of the relationship between salvation and sanctification in many ways. Um, We have a similar relationship in the New Testament between the Gospels and the Epistles. One has to do with pardon and the other has to do with purity. So I think in that sense, the book of Leviticus has a very important role to play in our understanding of of what it means to genuinely be a, a person a man or woman of God. 
So in that sense, I think it's really worth having a serious look at. Well, so if it's in essence a handbook for the priesthood, uh, how is it relevant to ordinary people like me or you know anybody else? Um, there are two major thrusts to the book. The first thrust would be writing the wrong relationship between human beings and God. So how does one write the wrong relationship? How does one become holy, if you would put it that way? And the second major thrust is how one continues the right relationship once it's been established. In other words, how does one continue to be holy? How does one walk in holiness, if you will? So those would be the two major thrusts of the book. And I would want to say that, that because God is the offended party in the relationship between man and God, it is God who alone can decide the how of the right relationship, what we call atonement or at-one-ment, being at one with God, atonement, at-one-ment. Um, so it is God that needs to give us the clues to understanding how we can move into a right relationship and how we maintain that right relationship. One would also want to say that forgiveness is never an end in itself. You know, the, the, the gospel is, is not complete if it just ends at become, becoming saved, uh, so to speak. Uh, forgiveness is never an end in itself. It is a means to help us be holy. And, and the other thing is that, you know, in the book of Leviticus, there's lots of accoutrement, if you will, uh, of, uh, of religion. Um, and, and all these physical acts and all these particular instruments that, that are used uh, within the book, these physical acts can have spiritual meaning. And, and I think that's important to us, for us to understand, even, even in today's New Testament understanding of church. I mean, we celebrate sacraments. We celebrate baptism. Those uh, the, the sacraments of baptism, the sacraments of Holy Communion. They are physical acts. Mm. They are things, if you will. Water is used in baptism. Wine or juice, uh, bread is used in Holy Communion. These are physical acts, but they have spiritual meaning. And so in the book of Leviticus, I think that's important to bear in mind as we look at it. Mm. I've never really heard God described as the offended party, but that really does put it in a, an interesting light. How are these two... Are these two major thrusts reflected in the design of the book? Interestingly, yes. I mean, to, to say, to use the word reflection is really a good use of a word. Um, because the book, of, the book of Leviticus hangs together by way of reflection. Bear with me now as I go into this. Just mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if our listeners have a Bible in front of them, this may help. But I would say essentially... There are a variety of sections in this book, more than, more than most. And if you take away the last two chapters, which, which are unique in themselves, and we'll come to those later, the blessings and the curses of chapters 26 and 27, you will see a book that is kind of mirror reflected. The first seven chapters have to do with the, the offerings, the five offerings that are scheduled. And at the end of the book, you've got the seven feasts. And then the second section in the book, chapters 8, 9, and 10, are laws about priests beginning their ministry. And on the other side, coming backwards, you've got a section on priesthood as well. And then you have a section, the third section would be a section of law. And again, that's reflected towards the end of the book. Uh, let me put it this way, see if this makes it clearer. 
the central portion of the book. You, you, you might remember, if you've listened to the, the section on Exodus, we talked about this strange thing we call chiastic structure, yeah. mm -hmm. which is basically a, a means whereby the writer wants to emphasize a major, major thought. And what he does, he builds up to it and he retracts from it. So, you know, it's kind of like, let's say for the sake of argument that, that he wants to suggest the major thought, we'll call it D, section D, if you will. He builds up to it by going A, B, C, then makes his central point and then retracts from it. He goes basically from D, he goes back to C, B, A. The, the entire book of Leviticus follows this chiastic structure. It's an amazing thing. And right at the very heart of the book in chapter 16 is the, the central core of the book, holiness unto the Lord. It is, it is the day of atonement, chapter 16. It is the crucial chapter in the book. But radiating from that central chapter, on either side, you've got laws. From chapters 11 to 15, you've got laws about cleansing and purification. On the other side of the Day of Atonement, chapters 17 to 20, you've got laws defining sin and punishment. But you see, the two are reflections of each other. And then beyond that, leading up to uh, the Day of Atonement, you've got the laws of the priesthood in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and the laws of the priesthood on the other side, chapters 21, 22. And then the beginning of the book, you've got the five offerings, and the end of the book, you've got the seven feasts. So it's kind of interesting how the writer pieced it together so that the first part of the book is the offerings, the priests, the laws, then the Day of Atonement, then the laws, the priesthood, and the feasts. And so what he's doing is, is very deliberately centering the book, the thought of the book, on the Day of Atonement, which is the ultimate opportunity for God and man to become at one with each other. So the opening sections, I would call them the offerings, the priests, the laws, is a means whereby we get to the Day of Atonement, what we might call preparation, what we might call what it means to become holy. And then following chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, we have the, the laws, the priests, and the feasts, being holy, if you will, what it means to continue to walk in holiness. So the book kind of is, is a mirror image of itself. If you put the mirror in chapter 16, emphasizing again this, this one thing, holiness unto the Lord. Because the whole book of Leviticus, of course, is about holiness. Is it uh, almost a cause and effect? So with the central theme in the middle? Or yes, exactly. Exactly, yes. The, the first section basically is, it has to do with the preparation and the, the last sections have to do with the realization. Hmm. Yes. So yes, I mean, how, how does one move into right relationship, the first section, then the Day of Atonement, and then how does one walk in holiness? How does one become holy? How does one continue to be holy? And, and, and right at the heart, of course, is the Day of Atonement. Let's talk about the Day of Atonement. Um, that's the central theme, obviously, as you just said. It, everything else revolves around it. Uh, why is this so critically important? Why, talk about holiness a bit. Well, holiness, of course, means to be set apart for God. And, and you know, all the instruments that, that are in the tabernacle, uh, in the temple eventually, uh, are all holy, because not because they are intrinsically holy, that there's something about them that is special. They are special because they've been set apart for the use of God. 
Now, I would even suggest that, that if there's a key verse in Leviticus that kind of unlocks the, the message of Leviticus, it's found in chapter 11, and it's uh, in verses 44 and 45. So I'm just going to look that up at the moment. Uh, chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, specifically uh, says this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, basically what you see there is, first of all, the affirmation that the Lord himself, Yahweh, God, is holy. And the emphasis here is upon God as being holy, separate, distinct from his creation. But here in the book of Leviticus, it's made very clear that the requirement for Israel and for the people of God is to be godlike, if you will, to be, to be holy. So if in fact we properly understand what God is saying here, we begin to understand that holiness is not an ethical thing as much as it is a relational thing. Holiness is being like God. It is not something like, like the instruments in the tabernacle. It is not something that intrinsically belongs to us. It simply is a relationship and it involves trust and obedience. You might remember that in the book of Genesis, we talked about two major ideas running through the book. And in fact, they run not only through the book of Genesis, but they run through the entire scripture. And it's what I call on the one hand, the theology of God's call mm -hmm. and the theology of the serpent. And I encourage the readers to go back to Genesis to, to, to review that idea. But here you have the theology of call. And call involves, you know, a God who reveals himself and a man, in this case Abraham it was in Genesis, but you know, for us today, how will we respond to, to God's revelation? Will we trust him? And, and if we trust him, will, will that trust emerge or emanate in, in, in obedience? Because if we are going to trust this God and this revelation of God, then we will obey him and that will bring blessing. Yeah. The theology of the serpent, on the other hand, of course, is that if uh, we, don't trust the, we don't trust God and distrust leads to unbelief, which leads to disobedience, which, which leads to the curse. But in this case, you see, when God is saying, be holy, like, because I am holy, the emphasis is on his holiness and the demand for us to be holy or for the people of God to be holy. And so we are holy in so far as we trust and obey and become like this God, as we relate to this God. So holiness is a relational concept. It is not an ethical concept, as is so often thought. Leviticus, I think, makes that very clear. We're setting ourselves apart for God's use. Exactly. And in relationship to God. I mean, that's, that's, that's the key to understanding, I think, what's going on. It sort of feels like the verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to make a conscious choice and effort to set ourselves apart for his use so that he will then draw near to us and use us in the way he, desi he is designed. I think that's precisely correct. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, wow. yes. 
Are there any other key ideas that... It's a might... great idea, by the way. I mean, that, that whole sense of, you know, yes, there, there are other ideas in the book, if that's what you're uh, we're asking. And holiness, of course, is the big one. Right. What, what does holiness really mean? And I think, again, the key verse is found there in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Be holy as I'm holy. Um, that sense of, uh, of a relationship with God, that, that, that sense of trust and obey for there's no other way mm-hmm. uh, to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, as the old hymnist used to say. Yeah. But yes, there are other things. I mean, you, you notice the repetition of certain words occur and recur over and over again. The idea of, you know, this, this I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Uh, that's the standard. It, 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 one sees it throughout the book. And also the words, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we, we talked about that a little bit in Exodus, you know, that when God designed the tabernacle and uh, said, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is how I want to be served. This is how I want to be obeyed. And the people said, well, we'll, we'll serve you in our way. We'll build a golden calf. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until, you know, eventually they came to their senses that they decided they were going to do it God's way. And when they did it God's way, then the blessing fell towards the end of the book of Exodus. So, so what you have here is a, is a recurrence of this, this idea that as, as the Lord commanded Moses, they, they're going to do everything now God's way, mm. which, which, you know, I mean, it's um, very much at odds with that song made famous by Frank Sinatra, you know, I'm going to do it my way, you know. Um, I mean, the whole biblical concept is you can't do it your way. Yeah. You've got to do it God's way. My wife hates uh, that song because of that. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I think that's good that she does. So, so it's, it's this constant reiteration, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, that is crucial to understanding the book uh, of Leviticus. Also, you've got the emphasis on, on worship, upon laws, upon offerings, upon feasts and, and, uh, and such. Yes. So he had to beat it into us, basically, into our heads, because we are hard-headed. Yes, I think so. There's a lifelong lesson there, isn't it? Yeah. To understand that we've got to, you know, we, we ought not to take matters into our own hands. This is, um, this is God's world at the last. So a lot of repetition. Why so much attention to the tabernacle and the offerings? Interesting, isn't it? That I mean, that's true. Um, Exodus is the story of uh, the tabernacle's construction. Leviticus tends to emphasize its use. Mm. And the tabernacle, uh, to give our listeners um, an idea, uh, basically is made up of three sections. Uh, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The outer court contains two furnishings, uh, the holy place three and the, uh, the holy of holies three. The outer court contains the great altar, which is the altar of sacrifice, and the laver, which is the place of cleansing. Before you go into the holy place, the offering needs to be made and cleansing needs to take place. So it's, it's forgiveness and, and cleansing that are symbolized by the great altar and the laver. And then one enters the holy place, and the holy place basically has another altar, but it's not a burnt offering. It's not an altar of sacrifice. It's an altar of incense which symbolizes the prayer of God's people going before the curtain, uh, which separates the holy place from the holy of holies. So you've got the altar of incense, and then you've the show table on which there is placed bread and the candlestick, on which, of course, brings light uh, to the place. And then behind the curtain, behind the veil, if you will, stands the holy of holies. And there are three things, three elements in the furnishings of the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, containing the law. And then the mercy seat, which is placed above 
the ark or on top of the ark, which represents the throne of God. And then the cherubim above the mercy seat, which represents the very presence of God. Hmm. So um, all of that is involved in the approach to God, if you will. That God basically dwells with his people in the Holy of Holies. He sits upon his throne. The psalmist will say, you know, the Lord sits as king over the floods of life. Yea, the Lord sits as king forever. And so there was the idea that his throne was actually the mercy seat, which covered the ark, uh, which, yes, covered the ark containing the law. And interestingly, only the, only the priest could go in there, of course, once, once a year in the Day of Atonement. That was the significant thing about the Day of Atonement. Uh, that's when the curtain allowed the high priest to pass through. Interestingly, on the death of Christ, you remember, the veil of the temple was rent in two from mm. top to bottom. Right. In other words, you know, embroidered upon the curtain separating the holy place and the holy of holies were two cherubim. The two cherubim were, were, were essentially guarding the way to the presence of God, which is a reflection, by the way, on Eden. You remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, uh, they were expelled from the, the tree of life, right. which represented the presence of God. And what you have here, it's fascinating, what you have here when they were banished Two cherubim stood in the way so they could not return to the presence of God. Now that is symbolized in the tabernacle. And the two cherubim are standing there as guardians to the Holy of Holies or to the throne of God or to the very presence of God. Now the the significant thing then is that when Jesus Christ died on a cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom. In other words, if, if I might put it kind of in down to earth terms, the, the, the two cherubim stepped aside mm. and for the first time allowed humanity into the very presence of God wow. when Jesus died. So, so the furnishings within the tabernacle, as outlined in Leviticus, are really, really fascinating in this sense. Um, one could go on at great length about the, the importance about each piece of it, and I'm not sure that that would be uh, helpful at this point in would, would take too much time to, to get into, but each piece had, had an important role to play, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of light, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of cleansing, in terms of reigning, in terms of presence, and so on. Each, each playing an important part. So that's why, that's why Leviticus would, uh, you know, will emphasize its, its use. These are the three major parts of the tabernacle, outer court, holy place, Holy of Holies. Well, we understand the Holy of Holies. Uh, outer court and holy place, if you were to make that relevant for today, or how do you make that relevant for today? Oh, my. Um, I, I think there are many ways, you know, and Christ himself made clear some of the analogies that were used that are used in the New Testament for this. But, you know, I think uh, Jesus claims to be the light of the world. I mean, the candlesticks in the holy place uh, were to light, were to represent light as mm-hmm. God is light. And Jesus comes and says, you know, I'm the light of the world. But before we can even enter into the place of holiness, uh, we need to place ourselves on the, on the great altar. Paul must have that in mind when he wrote to the church at Rome. I, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by God's mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your spirit, that you might know what is good and perfect, the good and perfect uh, will of God. So one cannot enter into the presence of God without this, this sacrifice being made. And we sacrifice ourselves, as Paul talks about in the Roman church. And, and from that sacrifice, there emerges cleansing. The laver represents cleansing, the, the water. 
the washing um, away of sin. So, so each, each would have you know, a significant part. And, and the fact that the holy place, you've got the altar of incense, which is continually burning, continually burning before the veil, talks about the continuous presence, you know, so that Paul, when, he, when he's writing, he'll talk about pray, pray continually. Don't stop ever, you know, let the, let the prayers of God's people ascend to him all the time, you know. And the candlestick, you know, I'm the light of the world, the showbread, I am the bread of life. Mm. Um, it's, all, it's all so symbolic and lovely. Wow. And I think it's so pertinent to us in understanding. As we understand the Old Testament, or the New Testament, we, we get this grasp into understanding the New Testament's uh, appreciation of the old and these various accoutrements, uh, the, these furnishings of the tabernacle. Wow. Uh, you mentioned sacrifice. Tell us about the sacrificial system established here. Um, yeah, the first seven chapters uh, are concerned with five offerings. They've been called various things, but essentially you've got the burnt offering in chapter one, you've got the cereal offering in chapter two, you've got the peace offering in chapter three, you've got the sin offering in chapter four, you've got the guilt offering in chapter five. Now, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that each of them have designated things that you need to bring, you know, the animal without blemish. Uh, the burnt offering was to deal with sin. Uh, the cereal offering was, a, was a, an offering of uh, gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, the peace offering was, as, as, as the name suggests, it was for fellowship and reconciliation. Uh, the sin offering, which you would bring a bull or a goat, was for unwitting sins. And the guilt offering, where you brought a lamb without blemish, was to rectify some wrongdoing. Interestingly, all of these sacrifices, except the cereal offering, blood is shed. You know, the Hebrews talks about without the shedding of blood, there is um, there's no forgiveness. Um, you know, right. so it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting that uh, that all of these sacrifices seem to have this blood shed, except the cereal offering. The cereal offering was for Thanksgiving. It was a Thanksgiving offering, so there was no need for the shedding of blood. There's no need for forgiveness as such because it was an offering of Thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Hmm. I mean, I find it interesting, however, that the guilt offering does allow for non-blood sacrifice for those who are not able to afford an animal. You know. Right. Um, you're supposed to bring a ram. If you can't bring a ram, you bring something else. You bring a dove, or pigeons, or whatever. And maybe you can't afford that, then you can bring some grain. So while Hebrews tells us that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, there's, I think this is a compassionate exception. <laughs> what, if anything, do these, uh, so we say, interesting, sometimes strange celebrations teach us today? You know, I do think, uh, I mean, they do seem a bit remote from our practices today, but, you know, they do have so much to reveal about God. They tell us about who God is, they tell us about what sin is, and they tell us about what atonement is. And I use that word again, atonement is mm -hmm. good theological word, meaning uh, how we become one with God, at-one-ment, atonement. Mm -hmm. It tells us, first of all, that, uh, that from the book of Leviticus and from these seven chapters and from these sacrifices, that you have a God who is, who is gracious, a God who is willing to forgive uh, sins. It tells us that, we have, that this, is, this is a God who is full of mercy. He, he's not given up on the human race. He's a God who is, who is loving, a God who is holy. Uh, a God who is in charge, a God who is sovereign over the affairs of humankind, and a God, frankly, who is relational. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you know, let's not forget that, uh, that these sacrifices uh, reveal to us something about the nature of a God who is absolutely wonderful. 
It also teaches us something about the nature of sin. Think about it. I mean, think about these sacrifices and what's involved, you know, and um, it tells us that, that, that sin is not make-believe, that it's real. Sin is a real thing. Right. And also that it's a serious thing. It's serious. Sin is serious. And, and I think, you know, that's something that, we, that maybe today we've lost that idea that Leviticus emphasizes, that sin is a serious matter and it's against God. And that's also very important. Sin is something that is against God. Right. And sin is punishable. I think yeah. the sacrifices tell us it's punishable. But it's also, more importantly, forgivable. So we learn something about the nature of God. It tells us something about the nature of sin. And then it tells, tells us something about how one moves into right relationship with God. It tells us, for example, because sin is serious, that making oneself right with God is costly. It's a costly thing to move into right relationship with God. And because God is a forgiving God, and because sin is forgivable, it involves confession on our part. It involves not only confession, it involves repentance. Repentance means a turnabout. You're going in one direction and you turn 180 degrees and go in a different direction. That it requires faith and it requires dedication. So, I mean, these are not, these are not so remote from our thinking when you actually boil them down to say, what, what can they teach us today about the nature of this God? Of, of the Old Testament, this, this God of Leviticus, this God of uh, during the, the Mosaic era. And what does it teach us about human nature and the nature of sin itself? What, what is sin and how should we understand it aright? And then how can it be dealt with in order, you know, that it doesn't become our judgment, our, our final acts that, you know, that, that it can in fact be dealt with. We have a God who is gracious, merciful, forgiving, um, and even though sin is a serious thing and is punishable, it is also forgivable. And we have a forgiving God. And all it costs then is that we need to confess, repent, uh, have faith in him, dedicate our lives to him. And it's, um, it's costly. You know, moving into right relationship is a costly thing. Mm. It's costly. Someone has said that salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Ah, yeah. I like that. I mm. like that. You know, it's free in that it's not going to it's not going to cost us anything to become believers, but it, it's going to de make demands upon the, the rest of our lives to live lives of holiness, to become godlike. That's what that's what it means to become to move into relationship with with Almighty God means to become more and more like Him, to become, uh, from the New Testament perspective, of course, to become more Christ-like. We would say. And the Day of Atonement. You know, the, the intriguing thing about the Day of Atonement in chapter uh, 16, it's really kind of fascinating because the high priest makes confession for his own sin and then he makes confession for the people's sin because he himself has to be in right relationship as he goes into the Holy of Holies. And, and so awesome was that event, of course, that tradition teaches us, has told us that that they would tie a rope around his ankle in the event that he never came out of the Holy of Holies, that he was struck dead <laughs> right. or something, or he collapsed or he had cardiac arrest or something. There was nobody else going to go in to get him out. Um, that, that, that they would, you know, they would pull him out like first, I guess. But so it was important for the priest, the high priest, 
And so the high priest had to offer for both himself and for the people two offerings, the sin offering and the burnt offering. And for the sin offering, he offered a bull, and for the burnt offering, he offered a ram. Now, when he then consecrated himself, and therefore he was able uh, to represent the people before God in the Holy of Holies, he had to make sacrifice for their sin. And so, again, you have the, the sin offering and the burnt offering, the sin offering, the two goats, the burnt offering, the ram. Now, I find it fascinating that, you know, the New Testament writers are going to use the analogy to describe Christ in the two goats, if you will. Hmm. There's one of the goats is sacrificed. Uh, you know, there are lots cast and one of the goats is sacrificed and the other goat is expelled into the wilderness, um, known as the scapegoat. Basically, the idea was that sin was laid upon that goat and that the goat was set free into the wilderness, representing the taking away of sin. So there was the sacrifice and the cleansing. Again, the idea of the, of the, of the great altar and the laver. So that what we have here on the Day of Atonement is a ram without blemish and, and a scapegoat. And the one that was without blemish was the one that was sacrificed. And the scapegoat was the one that carried everything, the, the sin of the, the people, the nation, into the wilderness. And so in the death of Christ, you have that sacrifice. And as a scapegoat, he carried our sins far away. The New Testament writers are very keen to, uh, to make that analogy uh, with this Day of Atonement. So Christ took the place of both. He did, yes, yes. I mean, the New Testament writers are very adamant in, in making that uh, comparison, yeah. In this chiastic structure of this book, um, if the heart is located at chapter 16 with this, the, the atonement, does the book end basically without a climax? You know, that's a really good question. That's why I said initially, you know, this chiastic structure runs from chapter 1 to chapter 25. The last two chapters are tagons at mm. the end. And they're fascinating, aren't they? Um, you know, from 23 to 25, you've got the, uh, the book ends with the seven feasts. They're annual feasts, of course, and they include three harvest feasts. And, and those seven feasts, um, you've got the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets or New Year, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So, uh, you know, the, the First Fruits represents the barley harvest. Pentecost represents the wheat harvest and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the final harvest, which, by the way, in the New Testament, you know, in Revelation 21, they take up that, that idea, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, um, representing the final harvest, which is the finality of the world's existence. Um, so, you know, uh, the Day of Atonement represents, uh, in, our, in our frame of reference, represents repentance. Uh, Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews will talk about that. The Feast of Trumpets, uh, Paul and Thessalonians will talk about the, uh, the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ will rise as a time of final judgment. Pentecost, of course, is represented by Luke, Dr. Luke, in Acts chapter 2 when, when the, the Holy Spirit comes in power upon uh, the disciples. And so what you have here is interesting. You've got, you've got Peter, you've got Paul, you've got Luke, you've got John the Divine, all making much of these feasts. And, and translating them into New Testament terms, end time terms, whatever the case might be. 
So uh, regarding the seven feasts, you know, one could say from a New Testament perspective that, that we see in these feasts Christian living and, and the person of Christ and the end times uh, because all those writers use that um, in, in ways to, to make their own separate points in their own particular writings. So uh, it's kind of interesting that, that you've got the feasts kind of balancing the offerings, the seven feasts at the end, balancing the offerings in the beginning of the book, chapters 1 to 7. But then the book will end with these two amazing chapters, 26 and 27, with the blessings and the curses. And, you know, it's kind of fascinating that what, that what, what Moses does is he, he separates the people. You know, the, the great covenant was made at Shechem. Uh, which is present-day Nablus. And Nablus lies in the heart of a very uh, narrow valley between two mountains, if you will. One is Mount Ebal, and the other is Mount Gerizim. They face each other. They're, they're relatively close to each other. So, so what you have here is Moses divides the, the nation, and, and in a very uh, demonstrable, um, practical, visual way, he places some of the tribes in Ebal and some of the tribes in Gerizim. And those in Ebal shout out the, the curses. And those in Gerizim shout out the, the blessings. And basically they shout towards each other across the valley uh, of Shechem. And basically it was to burn into their minds that here are the laws and here, here's the way of, of holiness. Either you're going to obey them or you're not going to obey them. You have a choice. You have either the theology of call, and that is that you believe what God is saying, you're going to trust him, you're going to obey him, and you'll be blessed. Or the theology of serpent, Mount Ebal, where you distrust this God. You will not believe him, you will disobey, and you'll be cursed. So they, each of them then are calling out these blessings and curses across the valley. So that occupies... Uh, 26 and 27. Basically, it becomes a full stamp, if you will, a, a period, a period mark uh, to the book. Um, you're either going to pay attention to this or you're going to, to be disobedient. And if you pay attention, if you obey, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed. And, and of course, it is a reminder again, I think, uh, as the book comes to a conclusion that the, the lessons of, of, of Leviticus is that God is sovereign. God is in control. Right. No matter what comes our way, uh, no matter what hits the earth, uh, no matter what catastrophes happen, this is God's world at the last. I hate it when, when I hear Christians say it's the devil's world. It is not the devil's world. It is God's world. And, and, and God, this God who's, who owns the world, he is a holy God, and he is a God who desires holiness for his people. And we've learned also from Leviticus that he is a merciful God, a forgiving God, a gracious God. And that while sin is real and serious and is punishable, it is also forgivable. And even though atonement is costly. So I think, you know, these, these are the great, the great truths that emerge from the book of Leviticus that I just love. And, and, you know, you asked originally, why should you study it? Oh, I hope I've convinced you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, now we've been through Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Next up is Numbers. Our walk yes. uh, through the Pentateuch continues. Uh, enumerate for me, please, why listeners should tune into that book. 
to the book of Numbers. Yes. <laughs> well, for, I mean, just if, if not for anything else, it is some of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible. You know, you have the story of, uh, of, of Balaam's speaking ass or donkey, if you will. <laughs> I mean, you have the great story of Balak who wants to curse the people. And uh, you have the, uh, the rod sprouting with, uh, with flowers. And, and you have the brazen serpent of Moses holding up the serpent in the wilderness. And anyone who looks can live. And it's a great book, the book of Numbers, even though it's got a wretched name. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's really a great, great book. And, and much to be learned because it kind of ends up where it, where it starts, which is, um, you know, sometimes we feel we've not made much progress in life and Numbers is going to talk to us about that very thing. Wonderful. Well, please join us for the next part of this excellent series and be sure to come to us with your thoughts, comments, and questions either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.